Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Hello there, listeners. After over two years of recording and 80 plus episodes, I am elated to announce that Enduro Bearings has agreed to become a supporter of the Cycling in Alignment podcast. This is a double win for you, the audience. You have the opportunity to demonstrate your support of the show by making a purchase on the website cycling.endurobearings.com and you get to save some dollars while you trick out your whip. Use the code Colby Podcast to receive a 35% discount on any of Enduro Bearings excellent products. That's Colby Podcast, which is all lowercase and all one word. This includes the excellent XD15 ceramic bottom bracket, which is guaranteed for life. That means it may outlive you because, well, it's inanimate. Enduro also makes headsets, derailleur pulleys, as well as bearings for just about everything that rotates on a bicycle. So use your digits to make the keyboard mudras and head over to cycling.endurobearings.com and upgrade your favorite ride now. And remember, the proper number of bicycles is always N plus one, so think ahead. Thanks for listening. Hey there, listeners. You are here for another episode of Cycling, Cycling in Alignment. I promise I can pronounce the title of my own podcast. And today I'm having a special conversation with Jeff Winkler. Coach Winkler has been on my pod before and we went on a group ride about, I don't know, a month ago. And we decided we hatched a plan to have a conversation. And the topic of this conversation is going to be a bit provocative. I'm doing that on purpose just to get you to click on it and listen to it. And here you are. So good job. This podcast is going to be titled why virtual riding is ruining cycling, AKA why Zwift is stupid. And that's my title. That's my position. I came up with it. So I'm going to, I'm going to make my points and then Jeff's going to give me some counterpoints. We're going to have a discussion and see where it goes. And ultimately it's all for fun. I'm going to beat up on indoor riding and virtual riding and Swift and trainer road and Ruby and I don't know, whatever else there is that's in that category of stuff. There's like probably five others. So I'm going to collectively refer to them all as Swift today. And I'm just going to gloves off for a few minutes and just really go to town. And the point isn't to actually be a dick. It's to make, it's to educate my audience as to why I think indoor training has some very serious pitfalls. But Jeff's going to offer some good counterpoints. And Jeff's a great guy to do that because he's a coach. He's a smart guy. He's been around the sport a long time. And he also does a fair amount of indoor cycling. And he leads uh, pretty regular indoor cycling groups, group rides on Zwift, right? Yeah. I mean, in the more in the winter season, but yeah, you know, less so now. Right. Yeah. So we're in Boulder, Colorado. It's summer when we were, are recording this. We're in uh, July. So we're not riding indoors, hopefully, too much right now. Although um, it seems that extreme weather is the new normal. So, uh, we've been having some super gnarly hailstorms and stuff and even days, uh, you know, air quotes, summer days where it's been pretty dismal forecast and, and air quality. It, yeah. Then there's air quality on top of that. We have five seasons now everywhere. We have winter, spring, summer, fall, and fire season. And fire season is all year long, which is 
not a good thing. So uh, those are just the realities of 2023, right? So Jeff, welcome to the pod. Thanks for coming Thank on. Thank you. I'm happy to be back. Cool. It should be fun. Yeah. So we're going to get right into it. I'm going to make my three points. I'll just give you a brief overview of my points first, and then we'll, we'll go through them and, and unpack them one by one. So the first thing that I'll say about indoor cycling in general, and this includes, I'll, I'll just define it first. Indoor cycling includes all indoor riding, uh, trainers, uh, smart trainers, and also virtual cycling is a subcategory of that. So that means you're on a trainer that is in erg mode where the power is dictated by the trainer, which is dictated by the software, depending on what you're doing. So if you're going up a climb, the resistance increases. If you're on somebody's wheel, the resistance decreases. So this is the type of thing you experience during Zwift races or group rides or during uh, you know, a Ruby workout or whatever. And so I'm putting all that in the same category. We'll just call it indoor, indoor cycling. And really the problem for me is that it dysregulates annual rhythms. And this might seem like a really trivial point, but annual rhythms are a significant influencer on our own circadian and biological rhythms. Uh, you know, bears hibernate, birds migrate, uh, bees do bee things in the summer and other bee things in the winter, they survive, right? Uh, fish somehow manage to survive in lakes in the winter, even though they're frozen. So every creature that is alive and has life force is regulated by these rhythms. And when we as humans think that we can outsmart these rhythms and just ride super hard year round and treat every month like it's summer, that's gonna cause problems. That's the fundamental premise of my first point about indoor riding is that it ignores these rhythms and we are fundamentally governed by natural law and we just can't do that without having friction in our lives. Uh, that friction can show up in different places, but there's friction. So we'll, we'll unpack that point. The next point that I have the biggest, the, of the three gripes, the three big bullets are that trainers really are what I say, what I term uh, niggle imbalancers. And some people in, in the U S in particular don't know what a niggle is. Niggle's a, a term I picked up from Steve Hogg when I trained with him in Australia. And a niggle is just uh, Australian ease for things that hurt right? Or, or things that aren't quite right. Like if you feel a little crooked on a bike, that's a niggle. If your knee kind of has knee pain periodically comes and goes, that's a niggle. If your lower back hurts when you start to do intervals or big gear intervals, that's a niggle, right? If your neck kind of hurts sometimes when you ride, etc. So trainers are imbalance magnifiers and niggle magnifiers. They make all those problems worse in my experience. That is if you have the same rider riding outdoors and then you put them indoors a bunch, all the niggles tend to get escalated or the volume gets turned up on those. That's my second big problem with indoor training. And the third one is really that indoor training by design tends to focus the rider intensely on data. Uh, specifically in the case of Zwift, watts per kilogram. That's what the rider sees and that's what they're obsessed with. And this has several connotations or ramifications. Um, one of them is that you sort of overemphasize the importance of threshold power and weight. And that can lead to some erroneous ideas about how to get faster, in my opinion, because it's 250,000 view. It's not discerning enough. I mean, those of you who listened to my podcast in the past, you're not going to be shocked by this statement from me. I'm always looking at the nuanced level and the deeper levels of how to have better understanding about things. That's just the way my brain works. So when somebody gives me a very 50,000 foot view on something, I tend to get a little combative about it. Uh, but the other 
The other problem with that focus on data is that I think already even riders who are outdoors are arguably a bit more focused on data than they ought to be. This is sort of a product of, we'll say the um, technological revolution that's hit cycling in the last decade or probably 15 years where just about everybody has a power meter. Uh, certainly most people have heart rate monitors, but we also got a plethora of other gizmos. You know, we've got devices that measure HRV and we've got devices that measure blood glucose and we've got Leomos that measure joint angles and you know, there's like 15 other things we can think of that are really expensive and all have an app and all require you to wear your phone in your pocket while you ride and measure stuff. And this emphasis on data takes the rider away from some of the most fundamental and important aspects of cycling for me, which is connection internally with the body, really feeling the body instead of analyzing the body. It's about being in the, the analytical mind is the data mind as opposed to feeling what's happening. And I, my argument is that feeling is one of the most fundamental tenets of being a really high level athlete or really anything. It's, it, it applies to anything, but you have to feel stuff. We can't always be in our science brains. And so this type of riding, when we see these metrics all the time, it takes us out of the feelings of our body. We don't have to worry about our posture, our breathing, uh, how stable our hips are, you know, how collapsed our spine is, uh, our knee orientation or, or um, tracking. We're not worried about pedal stroke per se. We're just making more power and more power and more power. And that's the only thing that matters. And that carrot can be really destructive because it fosters bad habits. So that's kind of related to the point about trainers being niggle magnifiers. They're, they're very similar but uh, they're also distinct at the same time. So that's my overview of my points. Um, Jeff, what, what do you think about all this? What's your initial response? Well, I guess I, I'll start with like maybe the 30,000 foot view is, is like, who are we talking about? You know, when we say ruining cycling or having a negative impact on cycling, do we mean racing? Do we mean very high level racing? Do we mean amateur participant racing? Um, or, or just participation in the sport itself, because I think the answers are a little bit nuanced depending upon which groups you're kind of focusing on. Mm. Um, and, and then I, I would say, uh, you know, I think that, that there's a lot of truth in, in your three viewpoints. And, and I also think we can see the other side of that. Um, uh, so, I mean, once I think the first thing we should do is define who we're talking about, or at least as we go through each of these points, we distinguish between maybe it's more applicable or less applicable to certain groups. Okay. So. Okay. That's a great point. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, like I admitted my, my title's a bit provocative, right? Um, virtual riding is ruining cycling, but for who is it ruining cycling for the competitive racer or is it ruining cycling for someone who's just getting started in the sport? And broadly, I'll comment on that and say, or maybe you have other um, rider categories in mind we can address, but in taking those two, which are, you might see as sort of extremes on a spectrum, I would say for the rider who's just getting into the sport, there can be some advantages to riding indoors. Um, it, it, just like you learn any new task, you can be overwhelmed by all the information and the tips, and maybe you're riding with friends and they're telling you to do this and that, and they're telling you how to go around a corner and how to pedal right and how to breathe right, and also to take your hands off the bars to grab your water bottle and stuff. And that it's just like learning anything new. It could be overwhelming. So from one perspective, we can see that if you rode indoors, you could focus on certain things and get those basics down, right? Like just right. focusing on cadence, for example. Um, that's a simple one. Like, you know, when you have someone who just starts a sport, they tend to ride at pretty low cadences, you know, 60, 70, 80 RPM is their kind of happy zone. And, and one of our, I would say fundamentals as a coach is to 
help expand that cadence range, get people to learn how to pedal a little smoothly at higher cadences, because those are really useful when you're in a Peloton typically. So if we want to teach them cadence, we could put them indoors and give them some cadence drills. And that might be a good use of that. Uh, but the downside to that, and this is a big one in my opinion, I can, I can see that argument. The downside I think is that we're taking away some of the more fundamental abilities are like handling, right? And basics of drafting. So one of the, one of the things that shocks me when people don't really understand this is they're riding with someone else and that rider starts to pull away from them, right? For example, the pace gets a little heated on a, on a moderate hill or maybe even just a flat stretch of road. And instinctively, somebody who's been riding on Zwift and they're relatively new to the sport, their, their only card that they might play or their response might be, well, just make more power because that's what they're used to is seeing power on the screen. And that's how they fundamentally understand going faster on a bike. Whereas you and I, we both raced in many giant Pelotons full of guys that are a lot stronger than us, uh, me probably more than you. And, and I'm used to getting my ass kicked or hanging on for dear life for a lot of long, big, long, long, hard bike races. So instead of making, sometimes you're already making as much power as you can, but you have to find a way to survive. So what do you do? You go through the corner faster than the guy in front of you by necessity. You get more arrow so that you can eke out every molecule of draft on that rider, right? You ride as close to the wheel as possible without crashing into them. Like your, your front wheel is three centimeters from their rear wheel, not three feet, or right? Overlapped. So or your overlapped. body is drafting, drafting their body, not yes. bike drafting bike. Especially in a slight right. sidewind situation. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. But, but so see here, we're already kind of going into the group that are the potentially competitive cyclists. Yep. And so I think right. if we step back and we say a lot of people are attracted to indoor riding because it's safe right? They don't encounter cars. They don't, mm. encounter, you know, all of the, you know, I mean, group rides with that, with crashes and broken equipment and broken bodies, you avoid all that. And, and I don't think we want to discount the value of that to mm. a lot of people. And, and along those same lines, it's not everybody's endpoint is outside riding in a group, either semi-competitive or informally competitive or formally competitive. And so for those people, obviously it's not ruining cycling. It is cycling. Mm. Right. The indoor is their end point. Mm. And so some of these points still matter, but maybe not the ones where we're, where we're saying it doesn't translate very well yeah. because then that becomes irrelevant. Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. That's a great point. Um, I definitely hear you on the safety part. I, I mean, this is why gravel exists, right? Because people are leaving the roads. I think riders are getting hit in cities all over the U S and, well, all over the world, you hear about people getting hit in Italy all the time. I mean, they're just more people on the, on the face of the earth. We're up to what, 8 billion people almost, right? Something, something like that. Some, some number that we spit out that we don't really actually understand. I mean, if any of us saw a billion objects with our eyes, we'd probably faint, uh, from the sheer scale of seeing that many things. So I, like it's their numbers that, that are obtuse is my point. And so when we, consider the the level, the number of cars that are on the road, people are, are getting hit. There's just more cars. You know, we can have discussions about distracted drivers and we can blame drivers as a group, but I'm not really interested in that discussion because I've, I'm also a driver and I also am not perfect. And there are moments where I've been distracted by something and, you know, made a little wiggle like we all, so the, the, the task is to just be present in whatever you're doing, whatever it is, and not hit people, not hit trees, not take yourself out. So that's a thing, but this is why gravel cropped up and why I think it's gaining in popularity. In addition, I think to the rising costs of insurance and promotion 
factor is road races require a lot more promoting and a lot more marshals, a lot more cops. So that discussion aside, I think that's one of the reasons why road racing is on the decline. But look, the people who live in gravel is is got safety concerns. Of course, too. Um, of course. I mean, just this weekend, I had two athletes at Ned Gravel that crashed seriously. And, yeah. you know, it, sometimes that's unavoidable and except for when you're on your trainer, unless you fall off your trainer. But, right. you know, right. basically racing in Zwift would allow you to have sort of this competitive outlet or your training routine mm. without having to encounter those safety concerns. And, and even to add on to the sort of mm-hmm. financial aspect is you don't have to have multiple bikes, right? You have the trainer, you know, bike on trainer yeah. or smart bike or your or indoor bike. Yeah. And, and that's that you can sort of play the game of cool equipment in game, like in a, in a case mm. of like Zwift, you unlock equipment and all that. And so you get sort of this experience of equipment without the financial impact of, hmm. of equipment. Just the monthly fee on Zwift, whatever that is. Right. Yeah. Some mod- that's your in, right? And, yeah. and think about it too, is like if you want to be competitive and participate in events in the real world, those are costs. You know, mm-hmm. lead bills four hundred dollars. You know, your average race is thirty-five to fifty dollars. You know, those things yeah. maybe they add up. And this way you kind of get all you can eat racing for, you know, mm. sixteen bucks a month. Right, right. Right. Okay. So yeah. which factors into one of our points of like, just because you can have all you can eat yeah. racing, should you have all, I, that's I mean, like a whole right, right. We'll, it is. We'll get there. Yeah. Yeah. And to, <laughs> to continue to that analogy, I mean, you know, what, like why are buffets dying in the U S and some parts of the U S because I think people have realized they're not that healthy for you. <laughs> so same concept, right? Um, yeah. I mean, that, I, I feel like that bleeds into my next point then, which is like, all right, so let's let's imagine let's imagine that we have this person who lives in a city. They live in Chicago or New York or Boston or whatever, and, and they can ride outside, but the riding's not great because it's a lot of bike paths, or it's or maybe they live in an urban area and there's just tons of traffic everywhere and there's no real those a lot of those cities were made without networks of bike lanes. So you're just out in the battle with the cars every day. The hustle is real and people are getting to work and you're trying to get your ride in. And you don't have easy access to farm roads or gravel. You'd have to ride for an hour to get out. I know a lot of people are in that situation. You know, any major city, you've got that type of potential scenario. And so they want to ride indoors. And I get it. I mean, I'm, I've proclaimed on this pod in the past that I'm the world's biggest bike dork, which is a lofty claim. And it's probably not true, but I'm going to say it anyway. But also depends on how you define dork. But I'll say that. I love cycling, but the things that I love about cycling that I really bring me back to the sport are there's three primary points. One is that I could go for a hike in the mountains and I could get to the top of a mountain. We have our local mountain here, Mount Sanitas, take about an hour to get up and down or something like that. And you get to the top and the views are amazing and you feel like you accomplished something and you went to the top of the mountain and you get on the trail and you see the spiders and the birds and the trees and all that stuff. And that's great. That's all awesome. Well, I think it's, you know, a lot of these things kind of bleed over into each other. So it might be good to sort of start with point one, which is that recognize that riding inside. Now, we know lots of people are going to do it. And so or it's going to be either part of what they do or it's going to be seasonally part of what they do or it's going to be all of what they do. Yep. And you need to recognize that being on a bike that is less mobile than one out on the road has consequences to injury and overuse and all of those things. And that was Colby's first point. And I I think there's really no denying that. Um, 
I think that the takeaway though, is that there are things you can do to your indoor setup mm. that minimize some of those problems um, and maybe will keep you away from injury and or discomfort. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. Okay, so I remember where I was. Sorry, we got interrupted by the delivery man there. So let me just rewind for a sec, that's all right. And then we'll get to that. That's an important, super important point. Uh, what I was going on about is, for me, cycling is about three different primary means of connection or, or things that I love about it. And one is, okay, I could go for a hike and I could get so far. I could go for a drive in my car and I'd be in an air-conditioned box. But cycling is unique because you can ride 60 or 80 or 100 miles in a day. You can go actually quite far and go to Estes Park or some other, these are little mountain towns that we have for those of you who aren't familiar with this area, and have this experience of traveling through the land and experiencing all this nature at what I would argue is the perfect speed because it's fast enough to where you actually get somewhere, but it's slow enough to where you can smell things and hear things and see things and see the moose and not just drive right by it at 65 miles an hour. You know, you see a lot in a car when you go on a road trip, but you're not in the environment as much, right? Unless you're driving a convertible at 20 miles an hour. So it's kind of what a car is. It's a human powered convertible. So I think that's really valuable. And so when someone falls in love with a sport, but then they end up riding indoors in this virtual environment that that takes that away. It also takes away some of the connection with self because you're consumed by the screen and the data. And then it, um, and, and those, those two points really are the big ones for me. I'll say is the, the travel, the connection with nature and the connection with self. And, and well, the third is really going A to B. And so, all of those are either diminished or eliminated when we ride indoors. So what I'm saying ultimately is given what we're about to unpack, which is the imbalances that trainers sort of inherently create in an athlete, I would argue, and this is very, this is not a popular thing. Like people tend to be very tribal. They're like, well, I love the Buccaneers. So you should love the Buccaneers because they're the greatest team of all times. You should love them. You should, because I do. Or it's like, hey, Jeff, have you seen this movie? You got to see this movie, dude. This movie's amazing. Have you ever seen Ghost Dog? It's like the coolest movie ever. It's one of my favorite movies. And why do we do that? I mean, actually, why do we do that? It's a real question I have. Like, why do I give a shit if you like Ghost Dog? Like, it's one of my favorite movies. But do I, why do I think, therefore, that Jeff should like Ghost Dog? That doesn't actually make any sense. Jeff's a different person. He has a different experience. So what I'm saying is, I love cycling, and I'm a, I'm, but maybe I'm not the world's biggest bike dork because... I don't think that someone should love cycling so much that they do it in their basement. I would rather have you go for a walk and go to a park and do 20 minutes of body weight exercise, push-ups and primal movements or, or something out because I think it's actually going to be healthier for you. I, I think you could, I, I can this goes back to like audience, right? And audience yes. preferences and goals. Um, I would say that I'm maybe, oddly different, even though I've had largely an outside experience with cycling, is that the being in nature isn't really the biggest draw for me. It's not all that important. Okay. And so maybe that's made it easier to transition to inside because I'm not, I'm losing that, but I'm also not valuing it in the same way that's, okay. that others do. And so maybe for people who get their outdoors in another way, they don't feel compelled to get it here. And that like I know during the pandemic, when when we were forced to be doing a lot of inside riding, or at least for a while, mm -hmm. um, I would just go on walks a lot, right? And so I was getting outside, yep. but I was doing the bike as an inside activity. 
Um, but I would argue though, that like one of your other points, I mean, yeah, you don't get A to B in the same way, obviously, but you do actually get to focus on self and some, I, I think it's a, you can make the argument that you have a better ability to focus on self mm. because you don't have to navigate the roads and the terrain and the other cars and balance and distraction from other things that are around you. And you actually could essentially close your eyes, which would make it the most self-focused thing. That's true. Possible. That would. Yeah. Um, yeah. And anyway, um, mm. that's, that's, again, it's like, if, if you value the outdoor part of the cycling experience, then yes, indoor is going to be less than. Okay. Yeah, so. Okay. That's a really interesting point. It makes me think of something I studied a few months ago in one of my courses that I'm taking, and it's called the theory of multiple intelligences. And I think to be fair, intelligences is actually a pretty crappy word for it. It really should be the theory of, of multiple aptitudes or preferences or views or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'll read them off for people just so they can hear them. If you want to go check these out, um, you're welcome to. And you can take a test uh, for this if you search. Uh, it's this guy, Howard Gardner, proposed eight sets of abilities that manifest multiple intelligences, right? And they are musical, uh, visual, spatial, linguistic, logical, mathematical, bodily kinesthetic, physical ability, and uh, characteristics, interpersonal, intrapersonal, and naturalistic. Uh, wait, there's two more. That seems like more than eight, way more than eight. So anyway, but one of them that I was thinking of is naturalistic. And so you can take a test and you can score on a spectrum for these. And I, for me, I was like off the charts on the naturalistic. Basically, I'm a tree-hugging hippie, which makes sense. I grew up in Boulder. So, you know, following the script. <laughs> I don't have a big dog, but I do own a, Su uh, I own a Subaru. Like, there's only three cars. It's like Audi, Subaru, Tesla, right? That's pretty much, yeah. it's like 85% of the car population. So I'm, I'm doing it as I, as I was told. But so I would guess that Jeff, if he took that test, he might score a lot lower on the naturalistic uh, aptitude, we'll right. say. Yeah. Right? So that's interesting. I mean... I totally see that perspective and it comes down to bio-individuality. Like one person likes chocolate, another likes vanilla. It's not yeah. good or bad. We just have to find a way to express ourselves in a way that's healthy. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and then I guess if, if you feel compelled or like, you know, you're, you're forced to be inside and you are more inclined like Colby, where maybe you feel you, you, you have less connection to the activity while you're doing it because it's missing certain key elements is you take steps to minimize those so that if you feel compelled, like you need to do this kind of indoor training, you yep. at least make the environment as conducive as possible. And that might mean you have a sort of inside outside setup for your indoor trainer. Mm -hmm. You know, you're not like in a box yep. with no natural light and, you know, no view or whatever, you know, right. I, mean, I know a lot of people do it on decks and stuff and, and for that reason. So, yeah. Um, but that, I mean, so maybe that ties mm -hmm. us back to that, to our like sort of practical point on, on indoor riding, which is how to set up your trainer yep. to avoid injury. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good one. And I, I just want to re-emphasize that point. I think my experiences in fitting that a lot of people are unaware that a trainer actually can upregulate a lot of niggles. It can really, if you have a knee thing or a back thing that's sort of been kind of coming and going for a long time and you sort of there are times where it gets a little bad and maybe you take a few days off or you reduce your riding load and then it goes away and you've kind of been battling that for for 
months or maybe years, it's not that uncommon for riders to kind of be like, yeah, whenever I get a little tired, my left knee hurts a bit, but I've never seen anyone about it because it's never gotten really bad. That's quite common. And in my experience, a trainer will make that tend to make that worse as a general rule. And I think the reason for that is because the bike is so fixed on the trainer. This is the fundamental problem is bikes are really, uh, they're very fixed. And so as a blanket statement, humans, we like to imagine that we're symmetrical. We look in the mirror and we see evenly spaced eyes and evenly our cheekbones are held at the same height. And we think that we pedal 50, 50 or should pedal 50, 50 with each leg. And we have the exact same length femur on each side, et cetera, et cetera. And the fact is this is not true. I have yet to see a single human who's perfectly symmetrical. I probably won't ever. We have a, you know, just as a really simple example, the liver's on the right side of your abdomen and where do we store carbohydrates as endurance athletes and our muscles and our liver. So when we're full of a lot of glycogen, well, by the way, for every molecule of glycogen, how many molecules of water are required to store? Right. Two. I thought it was three. Anyway, it's more. It's more. Yeah. So the point being is when you're fueled, you've got this liver that's like a sponge that's full of water, or it might be the way we think about it, or a big balloon on the right side of your abdomen. So are you gonna be able to move as effectively on that right side when you're really full of glycogen? Maybe not. Maybe, I don't know, it might be offset if you ate a big steak before your ride too, and then your stomach's full. So the point being is we imagine we're symmetrical. And when we ride down the road on a bike, what happens is we, we, make very, we make movements that are, have tiny asymmetries in them, but because you're balancing on a bike and you've got a well-adjusted headset and properly inflated tires, the bike will make these tiny micro movements that will just ever so slightly sort of sneak down the road and allow those asymmetries to sort of work themselves out to a certain degree. But on the trainer and it's fixed, then the bike doesn't move at all. And those little movements, my theory is, I don't have any, nothing to back this up at all. Is that basically the fascial system has to absorb that energy of those small micro movements and try to try to deal with it. And that causes problems. So I've actually used the Leomo devices um, on the trainer and compared riding on the trainer to riding outside. And there is a fundamental difference with hip movement. Um, they are diametrically posed. You have a lot of hip tilt when you're riding outdoors and you have a lot of hip rotation when you're riding indoors, indoors. on a fixed bike. Yeah. And so it may just be that the body adapts to whether it, it adapts to the two devices differently in that you've become accustomed to doing it or maybe if it's even more forgiving mm. on a moving bike outside than it is inside. But point of the matter is, is that you're moving differently which means yep. you can cause problems yep. because it's a different movement pattern. Yep. And so I think, so then that, given that that's the number one problem is the fixed nature of what you're sitting on, it's try to introduce movement yes. into it. And uh, I know I've ridden with people that when we initially during COVID went heavy indoors, some people had problems with me knee pain cropping up or saddle sores cropping up yep. because of the difference in the bike setup, you know, mainly the fixed nature of it. And so uh, we, you know, we kind of worked through a lot of those problems and, and the fix is as simple as putting something that has maybe a half inch to an inch play 
under each of the lateral feet so that you get a natural rocking motion on a fixed trainer. And a lot of those problems for people went away, mm. right? Um, and then you could take it to the next level with a rocker plate, which gives you even yep. more movement. Um, again, it's not the same. Uh, I recently got one and have done some riding on, on the rocker plate. Mm -hmm. um, which one did you get? It's, uh, it's a, I think it's a British one. Okay. But it's, it, it's one of the ones that moves in all the directions like Saris does. It just doesn't have quite as much engineering going on. It's got, you know, the yeah. inflated balls for resistance. And all oh, that it does. Kind of stuff. Yeah. But, but it moves forward and back. So as you get in and out of the saddle, it has a sort of outside feel to it. Mm. Um, it's and also side to side move, also. And it, and it, and angular, you know, yeah. side to side rocking. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, and it's interesting when you get on, when you go from the fixed setup to that, where you have freedom of movement, it's shockingly different you know, at first, and then you get yep. used to it, you know? Yep. So I agree uh, when I put people, so I've got, we're, we're recording this in my, my fit studio and we're looking at my Saris platform right now. It's the MP one, which is arguably the Gucciest of all the platforms. It's like a uh, grand, I think, um, at retail and, and it moves in all directions. It's got a lot of engineering, like Jeff mentioned, and it's worked really well. And for people who have never ridden on a platform that moves, they get on and the first thing they stand up and they go, Whoa, Whoa. And then, I would say pretty much unanimously people say, oh, I really like this. Um, if they're used to riding on a bike that's fixed indoors, they immediately feel how this is more organic and allows a little more, yeah, just organic movement to, and, and it's a responsive to your pedaling. But for me as a fitter, it shows me things. I want the bike to be closer to how it is outdoors. I don't want to put them in a completely artificial environment. I wouldn't make them ride their bike upside down. So why would I make it completely fixed, you know? Uh, and so I can see a little more of their natural movement on this. But I want to rewind just for a second, Jeff, because your comment about the Leomo is really interesting. So first, we just take a, a second to tell people what a Leomo is, because my experience is not that many people know about that yeah. device. So, yeah, it's been out for a while now, maybe, I don't know, five, seven years or something like that. And, and it's a number of um, motion sensors, um, you know, accelerometers that you put on different parts of your body. And it's quite a few, which is what makes it unique. And so you put some on your feet, you put some on your quads and and then on your sacrum and you can actually move those around and they'll you can put them on your upper back or you know there's various places you can put them but the one on the sacrum was the one and so then you connect to a device that measures the feedback from those sensors mm -hmm. and it, it tells you about movement patterns so it might be the you know the angular movement of your legs the ankling you know angular movement and so you get to see this sort of data-driven picture of cycling movement. Um, and the one on the sacrum tell, is there detecting in space how the hips, how the pelvis is moving in space. And so it's interesting that you see that difference between riding on a bike outside that's not fixed and one that's inside. Yeah. I haven't redone that like on a rocker plate. I suspect that a rocker plate is actually different from both of those. Hmm. It's probably somewhere in the middle. But, but think, it's yeah, not identical. Maybe depending on the design of the rocker plate or what. It, yeah, that'll be really interesting. I would love to hear what you find out about that when you decide to get that going. Because um, <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I have my own observations about watching people in the fit studio and this and that. But so, okay, then just to make sure we're clear, what you were saying is if we define, if we use our three planes of movement as a reference, right? So sagittal plane is the plane of movement that we use during running and walking primarily, right? And frontal plane would be the plane you would use if you were doing a cartwheel, right? The, or the Descartes um, Vitruvian man plane, right? Yeah. And then transverse plane uh, would be the plane that you would use uh, that a hula hoop would move in. That's how I would describe it, right? 
So what you were saying, I think, if I understood you right, is your observations were that outdoors, we had more movement of the hips in the frontal plane, more dip to the side. And on the trainer, we had more movement of the hip in the transverse plane. Is that correct? That's, that's I, the hula hoop plane. Yeah, I think given, given what a singular sensor probably is being, is able to measure, but that was basically the, how they defined the Leomo device to find the two different movement patterns for, yeah. the, hip, for the hip movement. Yeah. And I, I, and I, I think, well, definitely one I think was tilt, but the other one was either twist or rotation of the hips. That would probably be transverse. Yeah. So, so right. Um, yeah, I played with a, with a Leomo a bit myself, but I didn't ever get to the point where I put it on the trainer and looked at a lot of data. So I can't say I've seen that, but I'll say, uh, Okay, so the, we have to, I have to theorize because I am a dork. My guess on why we would have different differences in those movements, those hip movements, is because the torque curve on any trainer is different than it is out in the real world. I and, think it's And there's because, no inertia on the trainer. It's, it's a heavy flywheel, whereas on the road, we have a different situation. I think it has to do with the movement. Basically, the, if, if we could measure it when you ride outside, the bike is probably rocking. Right. And, yeah. And a little we bit. move against the natural movement of the bike, which is probably responding to our pedal stroke. So in the power stroke, it probably drives the bike into a, a bit yep. of a lean in yep. the direction of in whatever side you're you're pushing down. Yep. And your torso on the saddle adapts to that and keeps your center of mass centered. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you're getting rocking going on there. And that will have some impact actually on your pedal reach throughout the pedal stroke, mm -hmm. right? It's mm -hmm. actually an adjustment that would affect that dimension. Yep. Where if you then go inside and you're not having that happen, you have a different reach dynamic happening at less, the bottom. Of probably the pedal less change. Less change. Yeah. And so the body is mm. probably trying to find that adjustment through rotation to shorten mm. the reach to the pedal on a fixed bike. That's an interesting idea. I mean, yeah, I would say anecdotally, it's quite common for people to, you know, get on the trainer and say, oh, my bike feels different on the trainer than it does on the road. And, you know, some of that you can chalk up to like, well, if they're riding the trainer more in the winter, maybe they're less, they're not riding as many miles, or maybe they took a break in the fall and then they get back on and they're less in shape. So they're like, I'm gonna lower their saddle a little bit, those kinds of things. but. That's, or a yeah. second bike that's not identically that's, set up it or it's a Peloton or, or whatever. Yeah. Right. right. That's the other thing is you have to yeah. be super careful. If, you, if you're going to spend a lot of time indoor, you really got to get your indoor set. You should give your indoor setup just as much attention as you did to your, yes. you know, in real life bike. Maybe more because it has a tendency to highlight issues. Problems. Yeah. Um, that's a great point. Yeah. You know, so, and I know a lot, I mean, I I've seen services for like mm -hmm. Peloton fitting and such, but I, mean, I haven't looked at them in a long time, but, um, I, I definitely mm -hmm. would spend energy on making sure your indoor setup is, um, dialed, dialed. And, and then like the next level is to recognize, Hey, there's something different about indoor riding. Is there something with my fit and setup should actually be tweaked? for indoor riding, which and is, yeah, I've noticed some things. I mean, think of the other thing is you don't move around very much that you, you tend, unless you do it, unless you make a point of it, you don't mm -hmm. tend to get out of the saddle as much. So you aren't relieving 
pressure in that area. Yep. You also are, your hand pressure is, you tend to not move as much. And so a lot of those pressure points become yeah. more annoying and more noticeable. Yeah. And so it, I've noticed for me, saddle angle or saddle tilt is not identical for me, or it's not ideal for them to be identical inside outside. Mm. Uh, and it's probably because whatever position I'm in indoor, I feel more right. And so yeah. I feel like if I'm remembering correctly, it's more for me, it's more nose down tilt inside. Yeah. And that's to get a little bit of pressure off of that sensitive area because it doesn't move as much as it does outside. So I think that'd be common. Yeah. That'd be common. Um, but that also goes back to one of my points. If and I'm not saying you're doing this specifically, but I think it would be also a relatively common explanation for riders to, uh, if they're looking for a little less extension, we can hypothesize to the pedal, then they're gonna perhaps, one way to solve that is to come forward on the saddle a little bit. But if your saddle has any curve at all, even if it doesn't, what you're doing is taking yourself from an area of the saddle that has more surface area to an area that has less surface area, and therefore you're ramping up pressure. Maybe you're going harder at the same time, so some of that's offset by down pressure, but on the whole, you're probably still increasing the amount of pressure per square millimeter or square inch or whatever. And so then you get this sensation of like, wow, my saddle's kicking me in my junk, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, and you may not notice it if your durations are reasonably short. And yep. I mean, for a lot of people riding indoor, yeah. the sessions are shorter, so, yeah. so they don't run into big problems. But um, over the course of the past few years, I've spent a lot of time and, and tried to replicate outside, like during the COVID years, especially. Mm. And so, you know, I actually did an Everesting and that's a nine hour session, you know, indoors. Mm -hmm. And, um, but was regularly doing like the weekend rides, like your three to five hour rides doing those inside. And so all of these issues will become even more, you yeah. know, relevant um, yeah. when you try to go beyond 60 minutes or 90 minutes. Yeah. 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 So. Okay. So, that's all really good and useful. Um, will you just unpack a little bit? So you, you talked briefly about ways we can um, put something under the feet of the trainer to give it a little bit of wiggle. What, so what are we like doing? The, are we low budget, yeah. the low budget approach is to simply get towels. You uh -huh. just, you fold towels and you put them under so that they have squish, you know, so it might take a couple folds. And, the, and, and it, it also depends a little bit about how your trainer is sitting on the floor with how many points of contact it has where but it, basically you need to create some rock yeah and so if you have four points of contact in a square then you're going to have to have something under all four yeah so that it it moves rocks uniform the whole thing rocks if you have three points of contact or you have a center point of contact and two lateral points of contact you want squish on the outside and firm in the center so that you have a full so and, you, and you have a pivot yeah you know um, yeah and so that's that's the sort of low budget in something you have laying around most likely. The other thing is foam. Mm -hmm. And the, the next thing that I went to was to get a big like standing desk or workshop um, foam, you know, foam pad. And they make those in various thicknesses and get one big enough that it's under your whole trainer footprint. And so then you can move, you actually get squish in all directions, not simply side to side, but maybe at different angles. And so it actually is a little more dynamic in the way that it flexes. Mm -hmm. um, and then the last step is, is obviously uh, a rocker plate, um, which yeah. has a lot of options for movement and, and they have cheap ones that have just 
rocking movement and then more expensive ones that give you sort of yeah not quite 360 but movements in two directional two planes anyway yeah. forward and back and rock yeah yeah so okay um hmm. you know and and oddly enough i mean this is sort of related to this but um if if you're riding for me i found like since i added the rocker plate if i'm gonna do racing or higher intensity work on the trainer i i don't like it i don't want that much movement yeah and so like for me getting out of the saddle on a rocker plate is awkward it, it's so different than outside that movement isn't the key it's you want the movement that you get outside and to me having spent so many years doing it outside perhaps i just can't sort of reconcile it and so my power is much my output's drastically reduced out of the saddle hmm. if i'm on a rocker plate hmm. so so um, if you're doing a hard race or a swift race or something you know you're going to go to the saddle you'll take the plate out well no what i do is i i have some foam pads that i just stuff into the to the between the two boards oh. and it prevents it from rocking okay so i essentially just remove the movement temporarily yeah. okay so got it i did here, someone told me about a creative, simple solution that was maybe in between some of the levels you suggested. And I've never seen this in person. I can't say for how it works, but it sounded like a really simple, elegant solution that was um, in between a rocker plate and the foam bits. And what they did is they just got a cheap air mattress and they put a sheet of plywood on it and just put the whole setup on top of the piece of plywood. Yep. And then you just control how much rocker you want based on how inflated the air mattress is. The squishier it is, the more movement you'll have. And I was like, that's really simple. That that you know? will give you good fluid. Like, so it, it just, basically what that's doing is changing the precise contact points on the saddle in a micro way, yeah. right? Second by second. Every, yep. It's just moving it around so that you don't get that like kind of dead pressure mm -hmm. feel over time. Mm -hmm. So um, just like riding a gravel bike on a slightly bumpy trail with, you know, 18 PSI or 21 PSI or something in your side, you just get that float, that little yep. bit of yeah. And, and that I, on that, I mean, while we're going down that road, I have experimented with different saddles inside kind of mm. thinking for the, along the same reasons. It's like, Oh, the pressure situation is different. Do I need to explore a saddle indoor that I would never run outside, but, but I might, you know, and I experimented with the ISM ones because the, those two little prongs, you know, kind of move differently. And also mm -hmm. where you're sitting on the saddle, uh, it, it's going to move a little bit different and it, it worked. Um, it, ISM saddles are kind of strange. And, and if you're used to sort of the narrow kind yeah. of normal design, it, it, it's a little bit hard to get used to. Yeah. Um, it's a little wide for, it feels I, wide I for find some that. reason. That's what I found is it's ISM is rarely a final solution for me during fitting. It, it happens, but those little fingers are usually too wide, too spaced out. They've got a couple models where they made them a little narrow and I've seen some people like zip tie them closer and stuff, which is kind of goofy, but <laughs> In my experience, what happens is one of those tense fingers tends to warp and drop down over time, which allows someone to then get twisted right. around Probably the because the you're a little bit imbalanced, but yep. then it makes the saddle imbalanced, which makes your own imbalance which even worse. Even worse. <laughs> exactly. So you have to, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but one thing I have done, and I actually haven't had to go to it recently, but I have over, over some at times, is I actually have an ISM on a seat post and the normal saddle that I run outside on another seat post and I can just switch them on the uh -huh. trainer. So if yeah. I get like saddle sore off of one saddle, uh, I just Swap switch to out. the other one for a few days and then I can switch it back after okay. a few days. Okay. And it, it just changes the point where the contact is enough to where yeah. discomfort kind of is. It's obviously not a DI2 bike or is it? 
Well, I have, uh, I actually have the Wahoo smart bike, which okay. uh, I invested in early on. And oh, it, it, so it's an indoor bike. So then you, yeah, you're just swapping the saddle and the post or the right. It, it's yeah. super easy and I have tape on both. So like position yeah. is, you know, it's, it's easy enough to do. Yeah. Um, but, I, and while we're mentioning it, I mean, the Wahoo bike is another step that you can take to sort of help mm. with indoor comfort and immersion into what you're doing. And, and the key thing that the Wahoo bike does is it responds to the terrain in Zwift and will actually it raises lift, the front end lift, also. Right. Yeah. So as you're climbing, it goes up and but as that you just descend, it gives goes it down. a feeling of being more life. It's just sort of more interactive. That's, it's, that's it's the immersion be, part. Yeah, right. But but you can think about the same thing we've been talking about, where the pressure is on the saddle. Yeah. The fact if that thing is moving through different percentages yeah. while you're riding in, in a free ride scenario, you're changing the contact points uh -huh. subtly. And the, the weight distribution on the saddle. Yeah. So, so it helps with all those problems a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So. Oh, crap. I just had another question for you. Well, anyway, if it's important, it'll come to me. Um, good. Okay. So, so maybe uh, unless you have anything to add to that, I think that's a good kind of cap on that section about what we have we both agree basically that trainers are kind of in balance magnifiers that can cause problems for riders. So we have to accept that as coaches and as athletes, we have to understand that if we're going to go that route and we're going to train a lot indoors that we might anticipate some of those problems. So we want to really do what we can to kind of avoid that. And Jeff's offered some very helpful input on how to, how to manage that. But what about off the bike stuff? Do you, do you feel like off the bike movement and mobility, have you explored working with that to help offset some of those niggles or are you really more concerned with the setup of the trainer and rotating I, I haven't, I, I'm like, as a coach, it's, I'm a, it's better to do as I say, not as I do kind of thing. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty bad about, uh, off the bike stuff, but I, I think I've just been lucky that I haven't really had to in order to maintain balance and comfort and, and be injury free. Yeah. Um, I'm not convinced that there are off the bike things that are unique to riding inside. Um, I guess you could make the case if you have a unstable core in a particular way, that movement pattern difference between inside outside with the hip, you know, hip rotation, hip rocking, mm -hmm. it could be that you do have a core setup that makes you more prone to problems in either or of those scenarios, like in, in, in an unequal way. Yeah. Like maybe for you, your core is strong for, for lateral hips stabilization, mm -hmm. like rocking. It, mm -hmm. It's good at stabilizing a rocking hip, but it's particularly bad at stabilizing a rotating hip. Yeah. Yeah. And Trans so then point. you may end up with more problems right. be, just because of the way your structural weaknesses present. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, if you actually, if you note, I, I, I don't know, probably uh, uh, some very well uh, experienced eyes viewing you on the trainer to see if your movement patterns break down in a special way on the trainer yeah. would probably be helpful to yeah. identify that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, you know, I, I, the, I did a series of pods recently on what I refer to as the spiral pattern, which is that twisting in the transverse plane, that rotation of the hip. And I see that quite commonly here on this trainer, even on this platform, but also on rides all the time. And yeah. 
for me, that's sort of the common denominator of the movement pattern I see that almost every rider has. The question is, where are they on the spectrum? And what is the correlation with either pain or discomfort or injury? And predictably, just like everything in the world of human performance, there's almost no correlation between the magnitude of what you see in terms of stability of hips and the correlation of pain. We can have people who look quiet as mice and look very almost ideal. And then they're, but they're on the verge of quitting the sport because they've got chronic knee pain, back pain, shoulder pain, whatever you name it, or saddle sores. I mean, it literally goes everywhere and vice versa. We have people come in and my jaw hits the floor because they, I'm like, how are you been riding a bike? And they're like, what, what are you talking about? So (laughs) we have everybody, all the spectrums play out in all the infinite universes. Right. Um, but yeah, I would say that's a good, uh, that's a good way to look at it. Uh, My kind of, one of my tenets as a coach is to know, well, as an athlete, first is to know yourself. And then you translate that to the coach. It's to know your athlete really well. So if you're an athlete and you're having these troubles, dig into it, find out what the specifics are, begin to understand your own movement patterns. And my, my biggest, biggest message with anyone who's battling some sort of injury or challenge with the spiral pattern that we all have that asymmetrical capacity to want to rotate from tip to toe is know your pattern and then manage it, find tools to manage it. So it doesn't grow out of control. You're not going to fix it. We don't fix people. Um, I don't fix people. I coach people. I help them fix themselves, but I, I would offer that you also, your goal isn't to fix it. It's to manage it. It's to understand it and then begin to not let it grow out of control. It's, we're looking for the middle path. You're not perfection is kind of what I'm getting at. Yeah. And I, I think that like in that, so maybe you, 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 or a particular rider has a hip rotation problem or, or it, that movement pattern is, is exaggerated compared to the double quotes ideal. Yep. Um, when they're riding on a real bike, the headset and the steering mechanism allows for the bike to respond to that body movement. Yeah. Again, that's going to not be there when you're indoors. And so it may be that a problem that is manageable outside suddenly kind of gets pushed over the threshold into a problem. Um, that's it. So yeah, that one right now, nobody has solved. Um, although Mm -hmm. I've seen some prototype early version things where they do actually have like a twisting, uh, headset kind of set up. And so that the bike is kind of like, as we would, you know, basically like when you're sprinting, you know, and you get a little bit of turn in the front wheel. Right. Yeah. And if you can't do that on a trainer, yeah. Um, but they're trying to work that in. Um, I suppose if you have the means, then you could just get a bike treadmill in which case you're on your bike on a treadmill uh-huh. inside and I, all of this discussion people, goes away. Yeah, yeah, there were a few people who, who tried that. I remember Danny Summerhill found one that was big. The key is to find a running treadmill that's big enough to allow the bike. Well, they make some in Europe. Yeah, They yeah. just don't, don't have a big market yet. Yeah. But I mean, I mean, you have to have a huge room for it and everything, but- A lot of I mean, power, a lot of room and and probably a lot of money. I'm sure it's, it's yeah, not cheap, right? Yeah, I'm sure it's a, a small <laughs> but, car. But I mean, just while we say that, you know, remember if you spend a significant amount of time riding inside, don't think of it like we always traditionally, like we are both traditionalists. We've been in the sport for decades. Yep. The trainer is a sad substitute. You know, it traditionally it's mm-hmm. the sad substitute for outside riding and, and only in the most extreme scenarios did you go to it. Right. Yeah. And so therefore it got very little resources. You couldn't justify, I'm not spending that much on an indoor setup. I mean, I hate riding inside. Right. You know, and, and yet now if it's going to be a significant proportion of what you do think of it you're you should think of investing it in, in the way you the same way you think about your bike yeah right and, yeah. and that was a thing i did as i was like hey i have a road bike sitting in the shed what if i 
sell that and buy a really good indoor setup because I know I'm going to ride it just as much, mm. you know, during the COVID especially, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, well, yeah, th then it's actually cheap as far as a bike goes. Yeah. You know, you, we would say like, wait, to spend a couple thousand on an indoor setup, you'd be like, well, that's crazy. Right. right. Except that think about what percentage that is of what you might what, spend on a bike. <laughs> especially if you have a really nice modern road bike, a gravel bike, maybe a mountain bike. Yeah. I mean, it could be a fraction. Yeah. A right? small fraction. Right. Okay. <laughs> okay. So two follow-up questions. One, what do you think about rollers? And two, um, well, let's start with rollers. What do you think about rollers? I've ridden them over the years. Um, and in fact, I first started on Zwift as part of a beta program with a Kreitler roller setup when they were trying to work the power curve for the rollers. Yep. And that's what got me in, you know, that's what I had when I, when I went into it and I had dumb trainers. And so I was kind of like, that's, I, or maybe I only had wheel on trainers and I kind of like, wow, you know, I don't like the wheel on train or, you know, so I'll, I'll, I'll do rollers. Yep. Um, not being a trackie, uh, I never was like super invested in rollers, but I used them at different times in my career. Yeah. Um, and I think they are, they import more aspects of outside riding or they bring in some of the skills and balance things that we're going to get to as being absent. Yep. Um, and that's great if that's what you're trying to do. Um, if you're primarily working on fitness, I, Maybe, and maybe if you're pushing yourself, maybe that's a distraction. I just, I don't feel like, I feel like I have to think more about maintaining balance and integrity on rollers than I do outside, right? I can go mm -hmm. much harder outside. And so then I'm like, well, this is an artificial environment that's harder to do. So maybe I should not bring that into the picture and just focus on the when, physical. When output. you really yeah. want to focus on going hard on an interval day, yeah, right. So, but when but, they have a place theoretically in a rider's repertoire or stable on the medium days or the easy days yeah i mean again it's like you're what's one of the big hurdles of indoor riding is often monotony and boredom and all of those things so anything you can do to sort of mix it up that lets you get more time in at the time when it's difficult to go outside yeah yeah it's a good thing yeah so so i'll just share um my own experience with rollers and you know so i for those of you who don't know, I, I raced track for many years. And in 2000, there was a period of time when track was a summer sport. They would race the World Cups, which is how you qualify for world championships uh, all summer. And then they had summer six days, a few of them, mostly in Italy. And then they have world championships for sometime in September, um, usually the week of my wife's birthday, which went over really well. You know, Honey, do you have to leave for this bike race? Well, yeah, it's worlds. I do. So um, then they decided to make it a winter sport to coordinate with the six days, the winter six days more, which was a huge scene 20 years ago. And so they put worlds in April and then promptly USA cycling managed to move nationals to the same freaking weekend as worlds was. So I was still in the doghouse as far as my wife's birthday, because it was always a qualifier for the first world cup or something. So then we had world cups all winter long. So now I became an athlete who had to train through the winter and that, you know, I've lived, I've lived in Boulder my whole life. I mean, I've traveled a lot for racing, but I'm, you know, Boulder hippie child. So I had to train indoors. And back then Swift virtual racing wasn't a thing. And I, I've always hated trainers with a burning passion. Like they've always just made me want to hurl myself in front of a bus. So I went into Kreitler world and I did all my indoor training, all of it on Kreitler rollers with a killer headwind fan, which there is more than enough resistance with that thing to nuke any, even the strongest rider, which I certainly wasn't. 
but I did all my efforts on there. I did five minute intervals, three minute intervals, sprints. You could do, you couldn't really stand up super effectively on Kreitlers on, I could stand on them, but I couldn't make full power. I couldn't do a sprint workout per se. Right. But I, but you can go out and do a sprint workout when it's 32 degrees out, as long as you've got enough clothes, you're going to be fine. But, uh, I rode that for many years and then I, Eventually, the inside ride rollers came out, which I have a pair of here in the corner of my fit closet, fit studio. And um, occasionally when riders want to learn how to ride rollers and we have this discussion, and especially if they ride indoors a lot, but they're not in the virtual environment so much, I'll say, hey, have you considered rollers or, or just in the, in the right moment when a rider, I feel like that might really benefit them. Um, I'll ask them to try these and I'll, I keep them here. And they're, I think they're a perfect middle ground, I'll mention. Because for those of you who aren't familiar with Inside Ride, you can go look up their rollers online. But it's a set of rollers. But And if, if you ever tried to ride rollers and fallen off, you know it, it requires some learning. Like you said, Jeff, it's uh, in some ways your skills are upregulated from riding outdoors. You've got to pay a little more attention. And, and there are things I like about that. And for track, it's a thing, right? As you mentioned also, trackies, rollers are home. You just get used to it. And they're a good vehicle for that because on the track, you also arguably have to be a bit more precise about your the placement of your bike in space. Because as you know, got no brakes, can't coast. So uh, rollers kind of help reinforce that habit. But I started working with the inside ride. So the, the rollers are, it's a set of rollers inside another frame. And in that frame, the rollers can move forward and backwards, but they also have bumper bars on either end, which help prevent you from falling off the front or the back. And so they're by far the easiest rollers to learn on because they're very forgiving. They, they allow some forward and backward movement and a little side to side movement, a fair amount of side to side movement. And they're pretty clever. The it's other- like the rocker plate for a fixed train. It is, it, yeah, it is. very similar. Yeah, it's very similar. Yeah. The other pair that I got a chance to ride in, in Canada once at the Six Days of Burnaby that I don't know if they ever made it in production, but somebody came up with a really clever design. They made a parabolic roller but it wasn't the way you would think. There are some rollers who have a, a straight diameter and then and the, they have a concave lip on the end, which sort of theoretically bumps you into the middle. But this one was parabolic the other way. So it was thicker in the middle and then tapered down towards the sides. And so when you would ride off the center, naturally you would lean towards the center and it would center you. And it was actually shocking how well it worked. You could ride no handed, you could do whatever you wanted and it just kept bringing you back to center instead of pitching you towards the the, yeah. the edge of death, right? Apparently, I, I saw some YouTube video about how the wheels are designed for trains in the track, and, and they are not just flat. Oh. And so it's interesting if you want to look at, like, they, it was an interesting engineering problem because also trains turn. Yes. Right? <laughs> and so anyway, there's actually a, quite a bit of engineering in the design the shape of, of a chain train, wheel. Uh, of the wheel on huh. a train and it has to do with convex concave right. kind of shaping i had no so, idea no, yeah that's so, really anyway. interesting um you know who would know about that is uh jb's son charlie he's a he's a train fanatic okay maybe i'll have him on the pod someday <laughs> huh interesting okay so our our biggest point arguably is this discussion around the focus on data right and specifically for me, watts per kilogram. And, and I'll just intro this by saying, for me, the problem is that when someone, especially if they're not super experienced in the sport of cycling, and maybe they don't have a coach, or maybe they have a coach who doesn't know what the hell they're doing, they might look at watts per kilo and very simplistically say, all right, I want to be faster. I just got smoked in this whiff race. How do I be faster? Well, 
the simplest method would be either make more power or make less watts. Uh, sorry, make, make less weight, right? Less kilos, more power. Improve yeah. the equation. Well, how do we make more <laughs> watts? Well, we're so FTP focused or functional threshold power focused in this universe, because that's what's displayed on the graph all the time is as frequently as your, your threshold, everybody knows what your threshold is and how much you weigh. Be like, do more threshold, right? And I, you're a coach. I'm sure you can help me unpack why that's a little simplistic. And then the second point is make less kilos. Well, which leads to problems. Leads to problems, potentially, because kilos isn't the problem. It's we have to be more discerning and understand the difference between lean mass and fat mass and water weight. And it's the relationship of those three that determines your outcome. So if you're starving yourself and you're losing muscle mass and you're super glycogen depleted and dehydrated, best of all three, you're going to suck. But you might be really light that morning. So we can't equate low kilograms with high performance. But simplistically, that's what this equation sort of encourages us to do. Well, I'll, I'm going to be a little, I'm going to push back and Please. say, yes, uh, you know, if you're, we'll, we'll just, we'll just focus on Zwift. I mean, the way, I mean, all of the online systems are, will have a physics algorithm that they, you know, cap, they convert the power you generate on the trainer into forward motion in game. And, and they try to emulate real world physics to the extent that they can. And, yep. and is consistent with a usable gaming environment, you know, so th there's probably some shortcomings, some, there, there are some differences, um, some are by necessity just from computational power and network lag and all of the things that, that go along with a, an online environment. Um, but I, the question, I feel the question should be, does Zwift exaggerate the athletes who are focused on those metrics to being even more focused on them in an unhealthy way? Mm -hmm. And that, that, so that's point one. And then the other question would be for people who are otherwise not particularly focused on that, does showing them that information make them more focused on it than they should be? Yeah. Right. And so that might be the amateur or the, the one who doesn't come from the in real, in real life cycling with power meters and everything else, yep. but they just, they, they go to Zwift, that's their online environment. And then they see an interface that that illustrates their power and their power to weight ratio and that that has a direct correlation to like how well they do mm -hmm. in the game yeah. in, in a competitive setting yeah and I, I, i'm gonna quickly answer the first one is i don't think it makes it any worse for riders that's the category of riders who are already kind of focused on those metrics yeah. i mean i think the power meter already has nuts. already done the damage <laughs> Right. Yeah. I mean, we know independent, this is, it's a little bit like where you live too, because I would argue mm -hmm. a lot of people in, in Kansas and Iowa and Missouri, where it's relatively flat and yeah. rolling hills, actually Watts are more important, not Watts per kilo. Yeah. Right? They recognize that being able to power on the flats is a Watts game, not a Watts per kilo game. Mm. If you're in Colorado and Boulder, it's a Watts per kilo game because everybody rides into the mountains and then kilos are important. Right. Mm. Where Zwift is interesting is, as I would actually argue, Zwift is more like racing in the Midwest or riding in the Midwest than it is here in Boulder climbing, because Just, most of the events are on flat to rolling terrain. Okay. And so while they present watts per kilo, like in the, in the interface, they actually are modeling CDA too, right? Right. And so- But it, it's, it's much harder to model CDA accurately. That's- Well- 
for any given rider. Accurately is 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 a loaded description because Fair. okay, comparatively, like if you're trying to emulate real world CDA, mm -hmm. sure, complicated. Yeah. Can you approximate it mathematically? Yes, sure. In a way that behaves largely like it does in the real world? Mm. I would say yes. Okay. But but it does, it is clear. And I just read something this morning where someone had done a statistical analysis on there's a, a there's a whole ecosystem around Zwift racing. Yeah. And so there's a lot of uh, categorization schemes and ranking schemes and you know proposals to try to make the racing more fair or more homogenous in particular categories so that you feel like you're competing fairly against peers. And so is that one of the one of the reasons they use flat and rolling courses is because if they have long climbs, it would just, just blow, blow to smithereens and right. No I mean, I mean that's fun. true with group rides outside. It is the same thing. We have the same problem here every weekend. <laughs> yeah, you like, can't go on a ride outside. Uh, hour long climb and you're like, okay, we got to wait for ten minutes. Not a group ride anymore. Right. Um, right. Okay. But so they did statistics and they determined that 20 watt uh, or 20 minute watts or watts per kilo was not a statistically significant determinant of success in racing. Ooh, this is a great point. It, it clearly demonstrated like sprint power and short like one minute uh -huh. to, to five minute power was much more related to outcomes in races. Okay, wait, well, this was a study they did or just a white paper or what? I mean, it's it's like you. The, the cool thing it's about just, Zwift racing, it's quite transparent from a yeah. data perspective. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. you can like get the results. Yeah. You get everyone's power that yeah. they generated through the race, and so then you look at the, who was in the podium, mm -hmm. yeah. and you do all the numbers. You just so it's just an analysis, yeah. right? You just crunch it. That's assuming that people aren't air quotes weight doping. Well, right? How do we how do we control? It? Do you, well, that's like going to make a mandatory Garmin Ant Plus upload. They've they've done some things to to. They, they can only go about it from a transparency perspective. They can't measure, right? right? They can't be present. Right. So, but now, like in, in part of the ecosystem, if you change your weight, it highlights the fact to, to other people can easily discover that you made a weight change. Uh -huh. Yeah, but if you're smart enough just to make your account from the beginning, eight kilos light, you could, right? But, but then you got to ask yourself other moral questions about how important it is to do well and blah, blah, blah. And it's right. like a whole another black hole. Yes. But, but let's just assume that people are basically truthful with regards to their weight. That's a good assumption. I like um, that. Let's do you know, that. Or maybe the fudge is small enough to where it's like, okay, whatever. I, I, for me, it's like, is it Christmas weight? Is it end of summer weight? Well, yeah, and how often <laughs> do you between. update it? But right. I mean, I think that that system is imperfect, but it, as it yeah. ne necessarily is going to be. Um, mm -hmm. And so when they, there's competitions with higher stakes, they take more steps. Yeah. You know, but it would be now. problematic. I, I think it would be detrimental if, every, I mean, there's, you know, 500 races every day. If to participate, like if I wanted to do three races a week, for me to have to do some sort of verification system to compete at a mm. obviously amateur level, right, would be a deterrent. Yeah, and all for what level of? I mean, yeah, fair. I mean, what are the stakes? Well, you the know? stakes are growing, right? I mean, there's money you can win now as with races. Not like in, some of them not in the old guy B category races. Okay, fair I can enough. Tell you that. Fair enough. <laughs> That's fair. Um, then there's also the discussion around like, well, why why do we have doping in a local you know old man criterium? Same. Simply like the stakes are low, but the other side of it is well, but yeah, but we're all here to race and we want it to be fair. Like if somebody just cut the course, we wouldn't all be like, well, it's not that big a deal, you know. 
he won the race because he chopped through the last corner, you know, or, or went a block up early in the crit or something like that. It wouldn't be like, well, we'll let him have it because it wasn't an important race. Everyone would be up in arms. So, but I, yeah. and, but that's easier to police because you can see the guy who got marshals on the course, everybody well, watch him do it. Maybe, but hanging on cars used to be much harder to catch that's true. than it is now. And that's so true. that was something yeah. right in real world. And, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, yeah. certainly, I mean, you could say in, in criteriums, free laps, those are, that's a gray there's area. Some, there's some gray area there. And, you know, you can use that to your yeah. advantage. I touched and, a foot down during that crash. Well, there's yeah. that, or if you take your time getting to the pit, you actually get two free laps. Right. Of, I mean, there's right. there's lots know, anyway, of ways to yeah. people game systems. I mean, yes. that's that's sort of like maybe I don't know if we can get around that, but right. Um, anyway, back to the point of of hyper focus on those metrics. It's pretty clear in certain settings those drive things, mm -hmm. right? Like if if you are one or two kilos, I don't know, whatever, however, maybe let's say you're carrying some extra weight. You, mm -hmm. you know, in a race that finishes on a 10 or 15 minute climb, if you were lighter, you would do you're going to do better. Yeah. Right. But a lot of the races are actually um, sprint finishes. And mm -hmm. while they continually tweak the physics of the race dynamics or ride dynamics, you know, yeah. in game. Yeah. Um, Drafting is different than real world. And, and most people who ride Zwift who come from the real world comment that it you don't get as much rest. Like it, the drafting yeah. effect is much diminished. Yeah. And, um, and that it, tends to keep the Pelotons together a little more by default too, doesn't it? It, it puts everybody on. Well, there's, there's like, it's, it's a rich dynamic physics and they are changing mm -hmm. it. In the last year, they've made some changes that, that, so like one of the big problems, probably the number one problem is, it's not that the physics model is flawed, it's that in order to apply the physics model to everybody at the same time and communicate to everyone's screen, mm -hmm. it's, it's, there's too much lag in the system to do it. Yeah. The only way you could do that is if Zwift servers maintain the physical location or virtual physical location of every rider. And that's not how it works. It's uh -huh. a client-based system. Uh -huh. And so the client software figures out, am I in the draft, not in the draft or whatever. And then transmits. And trans, yeah. and so yeah. that, so then it does a calculation and says, I'm in the draft. So then my speed is this. Uh -huh. And so then, you know, the power goes less down or data is yeah. going back and forth from client to server and mm. lag is less important. Right, right, so, right. But, so what that means though, is you also can't, because you don't have physical space ownership, like in the real world, a key part of drafting and race dynamics is that two bikes can't be in the same place. Uh -huh. And in Zwift, they, they can, can sort of, yeah. they're, they're yeah. tweaking it. Yeah. But they, they don't have, they don't know where every bike is, so they can't prevent them mm -hmm. from collision, mm -hmm. right? And, or overlap. Yeah. And so what that does is it means that you have unreasonably high speeds in fields uh -huh. in Zwift. And that's because two, two elements combined. One, the physical space. And the other one is that everything is expressed in the game as speed. So it takes your inputs, your CDA, your draft position, all of these things. And the math then says, okay, this is how fast you get to go, mm -hmm. right? And so then if... If I'm in the field, I'm getting a draft. So it doesn't make it easier to pedal. 
it increases my speed. And so it's for me to mm. do what I do in the real world is easy. I just, I don't have to push as hard on the pedals. That's one adjustment I make. Yep. Yep. In Zwift, there's two adjustments. One is I have to detect a higher relative speed to the bike in front of me. Uh-huh. And then I release pressure on yep. the pedals yep. to slow my speed until it matches. In the real world, that doesn't that, uh, never that's, happens. That, that's yeah. sec, you know, that two-step process. And yeah. so yeah. basically what ends up happening is that you I'm putting the rider in front of them. Exactly. I'm putting a certain yeah. amount of pressure down, which means I ride through that rider yeah. to the front of the field. Yeah. And then I translate my enhanced mile or two an hour to the field. And then someone and else does it to you. And, and that's then, called yeah. churn. Yeah. Okay. And so they're trying to reduce churn. Right. Because that right. then that that slows down the peloton, which then means breakaways have a better chance. Yeah. Yeah. So the reason a lot of things finish in sprints, that's a long-winded way to say, is because the fields go unnaturally really fast. fast. Right. Right. Compared, well, yeah. compared to the real world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but mm. I mean, in this, mm. this is I don't know if this is the right point, but it to me, this is even though it's different. The reason I don't think Swift is bad from a racing prep perspective mm. is that you as the competitor are forced to integrate all of these tactical strategic variables in a, in a way that affects performance, right? Yeah. And, and even if they're a little bit different than they are in real world, it trains your mind yeah. to account for them yeah. in a similar way. Yeah, it's still fundamentally a tactical problem you have to solve. Right, and so you you make different adjustments. So like you have to be like, okay, I need to pay attention to relative motion of the riders as my cue mm. to back off, mm. right? It doesn't just get naturally easier through the smart bike. So as soon as you start to come through a rider, you back off before it happens, right. and then that's how you save energy. Right. Yeah, okay. And mm. so, okay, you know, it, but they're making changes to make it behave more realistically. And, and I, they're making mm. good strides. And it, it's it's not this like huge high powered blobs just going around the roads anymore. <laughs> and, and they're they're introducing some spatial awareness um, and they're they're trying to emulate real world behavior by applying auto braking yeah. to you to your avatar so that if you're like drafting somebody and you're not putting out more power than they are to hold their spot, it doesn't allow you to go through them. Right. Type of thing. Right. You know, and all of those things tend to make like you, you, you like as a longtime observer of how, you know, mass start racing goes, it starts to look more like it does in real life. Mm -hmm. Like you see strung out fields, you see breakaways, you see, you know, whatever. And um, anyway, my yeah. point was like the value of is sort of like one of our points is like, I think, racing in Zwift is valuable. I think it translates not exactly, but mm -hmm. principally, yeah. you know, the principles at work yeah. are, are translatable. Yeah. And I know I coach some athletes that are like, well, I, I, I learned things in Zwift and took those. And I, I would not have been able to do as well in the real world had I not had that as a foundational hmm. learning environment. Okay. okay. Um, clearly you get different inputs in the real world. Um, drafting, Feedback is different. The manner in which you detect it is different, which yep. is really a big one. Like yes. you know, feeling the wind, hearing the way on your face, you know, yep. all of those things. Yep. Um, and then having to manage braking in, in that setting. Mm. Those are 
real world skills. Like, and so like to your point of like, well, Zwift doesn't emulate those. It doesn't, it can't. I mean, maybe it will at some point, but, uh, or there'll be a mode where it's like real world there'll mode. An, and an automatic fan that kicks on whenever you're in the wind and well, slows down when you're in the drop. Wahoo's smart fan and yeah, they could do that. Fan, yeah, they could. Um, yeah. But more importantly, like if you don't control your speed, you ride into the back of the person, you overlap wheels yeah, and you yeah. fall. Right. Yeah. I mean that that in theory could be done, <laughs> mm-hmm. but but that it's almost not even really the point to emulate outside perfectly. It's just yeah, is there a tactical environment that you must learn how to yeah maximize yeah you know yeah yeah I see all those points and that's good that's good to hear. You've got writers who have learned lessons and feel like they're gaining knowledge from it. I mean, I'll say I have writers who have raced whipped quite a bit in the last couple of winters and. Some of them have gotten really strong, like really strong. That said, one in particular has also had chronic hip problems. Mm. So it's unfortunate. And I keep, we've had lots of conversations about ways to get the trainer to move more. And so, okay, so there's those challenges. But really, I think I'm just pissed off because, look, man, I mean, my whole, you know, air quotes career was made off of my own particular set of characteristics. And my Colbyness is what enabled me to have the success and failures I had on the bike. And I was known for being a really average powered engine who was just like arrow as shit. People hated being on my wheel in a group ride. And this is like the oldest joke in the world. Like, dude, you're so arrow. I hate riding on your wheel. Yeah, I know. Deal with it. So you rock what you got. Now, if I went into Zwift, I would get smoked. I'm sure well, you'd lose that. I'd lose that because right. their algorithm won't like I'm in like the 98th percentile for arrow ness even for my size and weight, all dimensions, whatever reason, I just have an arrow shaped ass. Nobody really can actually explain it. Just really arrow, but okay. Neat. Like in Zwift, that wouldn't mean anything that the algorithm might be way off the chart. Everyone's Everyone's the the same. same. So except for high, you know, so it's not very sophisticated, which is it's, it's, it's based on weight. It's, it's right. It has to be it's height and weight. Yeah. But it's everyone who has the same height and weight has is the, the same. same CDA. Yeah. And you're an example so of that not being true in the room. Yes. Okay. I, an extreme example. So, I, so that I'd be away. at a big disadvantage. So that goes away. So I'd have to wait though for sure. <laughs> but, um, well, I mean, and, and I mean, let's be real. Yeah. There are, there is a spectrum of, of racing technique that has as big an input on output, you know, in performance and, and results as, how it, it so at some levels that's right? that's one of my most essential arguments in this section is that a rider ha- you know you've got a very narrow set of foci mm-hmm. fo- focuses when you're in swift and that you know you're you're concerned with these algorithms and how to gain the system or whatever or play the i'll say not everyone's game the system say playing tactical games within the world of swift and that's going to give you a certain set of skills none of those involve things like feeling the draft in a crosswind sniffing out a tailwind section, um, understanding the subtle tactical, tactical implications of a turn and change in direction on a course, change in road surface, how to go around a corner, how to put on a rain jacket while you're riding your bike. Like none of those things are taught. And again, you know, the examples I'm giving are in a competitive field because that's how my brain thinks because I've been a bike racer for 35 years and that's not applicable to everyone, but everyone who rides a bike outdoors needs to know how to go around corners. And I have riders who come to my fist too, and they're like, yeah, I ride indoors a lot. And man, I crawl down hills. I don't, I descend like a grandpa and I just have no interest in going fast. And to me, that actually makes me a little sad because for, 
again, you know, in spite of my characteristics or my preferences for being outdoors, one of the things that initially, initially drew me to the sport when I was 15 years old is I, I basically conned my stepmom into buying me an entry level racing bike to ride to school on just because I thought it looked cool. And she went for it. And then I realized how fast you could go on a Nishiki Prestige with tan steel tubing in our neighborhood with 19 mil tires pumped up to 100 PSI. You can go like 32 miles an hour like that. You can crash at 32 miles an hour too. I discovered that one as well. But man, you can go fast. And I just, I was like, this thing is so, there's so much speed you can have without that much effort. You go up to the top of a hill and you turn around and rip back down the thing and you're zooming through corners and, you know, sailing past people's uh, mailboxes and it's fun. So when people tell me that they don't enjoy going fast at all, that they're terrified to go fast, and then they tell me that their primary mode of enjoying cycling is indoors, I feel like they're missing. So I am tribalistic in that, that sense because I don't, I'm not saying everyone should, this isn't about risk. People quickly assume when I make this discussion that I want people to have their hair on fire and go ripping around corners and be crazy. That's not like, I'm 51, dude. I like, you know, gravity always wins, knock on wood. Like we all, unless you're an astronaut or scuba diver, just never lets go. And you ride your bike long enough, you're it, gonna fall it off. It's not it an if, it's a when. I hate to yeah. say it, but it just is. So we try to minimize the dumb crashes. We bulletproof our bodies so when we hit the ground, things don't go horribly wrong. And we wear helmets and gloves and we do all the things and we're safe and we take reasonable risk but also it's about having the proper technique so that your JRA speed is gets closer and closer to your hair on fire speed without assuming additional risk. That's the goal of a, of a good bike fit and a good coaching session. Yeah. I would just, I mean, that assumes that's what you, what it, it, you're expressing it, that has value to you, right? That, that being able to move through, the real world at greater speeds with no enhanced risk and is valuable. Yeah. Maybe not everybody. And maybe not everybody I, does. I don't know, man. I, I have a hard time feeling that the essence of cycling at some level is, is about speed. the velocity, not about going maximal speed, but it is about speed. And anyone who can go 16 miles an hour on a flat road, if you change their position, made them more arrow and they could handle that aerodynamic change. And you gave them a little faster wheels and you gave them better pedaling technique or whatever else you did, or you taught them to drink water. And suddenly they averaged 18 miles an hour instead of 16. And they went 27 on the little downhills instead of 21. They'd probably all be like, yeah, that was cool. Just about, just about everybody. would. No, I mean, a, a lot of people obviously progress along that, that trajectory, you know, yeah. and, and that's whatever it, it, it is, what it is. But there are some people that that there is probably a speed threshold that once they hit it, they are uncomfortable and it doesn't have anything sure. to do with their skills. For sure. You know, it's just they cannot be comfortable at that speed. And and I would I, I don't know that that we need to impose sort of a, you know, a system that says, hey, you need to be comfortable at 35 miles an hour on a downhill. It's not my job to tell people how to enjoy their lives. I, yeah, to be clear, I'm not. And so I'm not here to do that. Yes. Well, and and to your example, though, so sort of looping it back to Zwift. Yeah. Is you have to ask the question: Is their lack of skill because of Zwift, right? Or in addition to, like in spite of? You know, um, you could make the case that the more you ride outside 
the, your skills should advance. But that's not always true. And I don't know that riding inside, therefore not working on those skills actually makes you worse. You know, if that was true, I mean, I suppose some skills once learned are kind of always there, mm. but you know, for like two years, for certainly for like a year, I didn't go outside and it's well, not like I forgot how to do yeah, it. Yeah, but you don't count, dude, you were a pro for years. I mean, but, but it wasn't even awkward for more than a very brief second, Yeah. right? You know, and so it makes me think maybe and I've worked with athletes that struggled with some of the sort of, you know, it, it is and it isn't, but it's easier to just call it risk-taking behaviors that are necessary when you compete in yeah. cycling. Yeah. They, they really struggled to change, and it's really a mental state, right? You have to reframe things. You have to push thoughts about the, the outcomes of potential risk they have to kind of not be at the front of your mind. Otherwise, yeah. how would you act in that Ever. scenario? Yeah. Right? You would always be paralyzed because yeah. they would be, because they are real risks. But, you know, I remember going through sort of conversations to try to say, well, what were you thinking in this moment when you had a choice to do X or Y mm. and you chose the more conservative thing? Were you thinking about the risk of crashing, the pain associated after the crashing? Yeah. It, and, and there was lots of weird internal explanations that may be weird when i say weird they were different than the ones i made yeah yeah um, but one was that struck me as particularly strange was they were worried about the lost training time mm -hmm. resulting yeah. from the crash yeah but the whole point of the training time is to improve performance which you needed to make the decision yeah. that was riskier in order to perform well. Yeah. So you're at one hand making a non-performance decision and yet choosing to make it for ostensibly a performance reason. Right, right, right. You right. Know? So yeah. anyway, the whole point is to illustrate different thought processes are going around, yeah. uh, going on at this time. Mm -hmm. And if if we can like make all that go away and you still get the competitive outlet yep. on Zwift, I'm for it. Okay. You know, especially mm -hmm. for a lot of people, I, I can tell you, I, I've done it a fair amount and I've obviously done real world a fair amount. And uh, like I, I did 35 races from January to May this year mm -hmm. on, on Zwift. Mm -hmm. And that's typically like your point about seasonality. I mean, that's unusual seasonality mm -hmm. perhaps. You know, well, the old school speaking, wasn't, yeah. Depends. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, it depends okay. what you like focus in yeah, on yeah. traditionally. Okay. Um, uh, but if, if that was all, and, and I race much less like than the serious racers on Zwift, mm. they race every week. Um, and in fact, the seasons are probably flipped. It's a little bit like track was, right? It's more, it's more winter, winter heavy. It's Northern hemisphere, winter heavy. Yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, it, and since the two company countries that dominate are the U S and the UK, I mean, it's kind of yeah. a Northern hemisphere kind of yeah. environment. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I, 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 didn't find it to be detrimental to race that much. Mm -hmm. And it's funny, old school racing was like, well, the only way you get better is by racing a ton. That's, yeah, <laughs> best training is racing. Right, yeah. And, and so for me, it's a little bit like, mm. it's being retro. It's actually achieving what I wanted to achieve in the 90s, mm -hmm. you know, or as I was coming up in the sport, was more racing. And given the state of racing in the US, 
it, that problem is even worse than it was it back is. then. Yeah. And so if this is a vehicle, like maybe you go on a three hour outdoor training ride and then you end and you do like training races on Zwift. Mm-hmm. I mean, that would be essentially like the Kermes setup or the, the training race setup yeah. that used to exist in the nineties here, you yeah. know, eighties and nineties. So that would be a very balanced way to use it. You know, yeah. even in the winter, go out and you do that and then you ride the race and you ride the race maybe with a specific uh, objective or with perhaps there are certain aspects of it that are governed, right? You know? Well, I mean, um, as you know, when we did a lot of races, you didn't line up every race like that's, I'm prepared to have my best performance. That's what I'm getting at. Yeah, you you went into early season races most of the time understanding you were kind of using them for, for a specific training. purpose of training. Yeah, whether it was leg speed or whatever. Yeah, I mean, right? you got to the end of the race, you would give it your all, yeah. but you were like not expecting like, hey, yeah. if I don't get top 10, I'm going to be unsatisfied because mm-hmm. the purpose was at least shared with there's yeah. a training effect in my participation. Yeah. Right. And I can tell you like a lot of the big time Zwifters, like the top sort of Zwift pros, I know they're lining up for races where they're not they're doing not going, that. Yeah. They're not going full tilt or they're not expecting, um, but there's so many races and I don't, I don't know all the ins and outs of sponsorship obligations on these teams, but I think participation is a big one. And so they have to do races that they're not ideally suited and, you know, ready to do well in yeah and some of them don't matter that much they're just like they're on the calendar they're not super important they're not like nationals worlds qualifiers what have you or the big series yeah and so maybe they don't care so they you know they give it a good go but you know when it, they're not going as deep as they could go mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. so um but yeah I, I i was shocked when i looked and i and my first reaction being you know traditionally uh, informed about the sport was like this can't be good. It's too much racing, right? Mm-hmm. But they don't train. So it's, and they're short sessions. They're not mm-hmm. doing five hour sessions, right? These are 45 to 60 45 minute, minute races would be I typical. Mean, yeah. And they're getting shorter. There's yeah. a lot of shorter options yeah. now, yeah. 20, 20 to 60. So, you know, I mean, from a physiological perspective though, like, okay, if we're talking about training the aerobic system and the glycolytic system broadly, the races are going to be a blend of both probably normally a 45 minute race in the real world would be probably pretty glycolytic, but Zwift world that kind of gets um, smoothed because of the algorithms and stuff, as far as I would understand it. And some of the data I've seen, is that relatively I actually accurate? think, I think it's pretty comparable. Really? I think it's durationally driven. Yeah. So okay. real world duration intensity profiles yeah. are pretty similar to in terms of like time and zone time accumulated in different zones or whatever. Or just like just the conceptually like a forty five minute race goes this hard. Right? Yeah. And so yeah, yeah, everybody's yeah. going that hard. That hard. They okay. Know they can't, All right. You know. So, so then I mean, okay, let's take Swift out of it for a second and just use a thought experiment. If I had someone who was going to do um, hard stuff twelve months a year, which again I wouldn't recommend because I think that goes against a basic law of seasonality. And it was going to be 45 minute bike races pretty much once a week, 50 weeks a year. I would, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there are athletes who can do it and they probably would enjoy it. Uh, you know, there are athletes on a spectrum who some people like me, I'm definitely on the end of the spectrum where like I do something for too many months in a row and I just start to go batshit crazy. Like I just need a change. There are times where I have to put my bike away and go for a run. Um, and that even, maybe limited me as a racer at some points in my career, because I was just starting to lose it a little bit as focused as, and it's not as I, as a, as much of a nutball as I was about cycling. I couldn't, I wasn't a, an automaton about it. I couldn't just go out and do six hour rides year round. So that said, um, if I look at most athletes, 
and I gave them, and they came to me with this program and said, I want to race my bike twice a week, we'll say, for 45 minutes in an outdoor crit in Houston. And I'm going to do it year round. How do we build a training program on that? Probably the first response I would have is this is a stupid idea. Like you're going to, you're going to, the chances of you having some sort of challenge from trying to do that intensive racing for that many months, that many weeks and months in a row are so high that I can't see that being a good plan. No, I think uh, most coaches would push back on that. And, and, you know, some of the trends that are out there now about, you know, 80, 20 and yeah. polarized and all of these things, you know, it might start to look a little bit too intense. Yeah. Um, but I'll just push back and say real world. It's no different than what people do on group rides and people do group rides year round and they do the same thing. Yeah. You know, I, they there's do. exceptions. They do. But, uh, yeah, you're right. And, and that's a problem because people who live in Tucson and do the shootout, at, you know, 12 months a year. But I would argue stale. that it's it's a problem with maybe how we've done things. Like it's certainly inconsistent with what is the accepted pattern. Yeah. But we're always managing work recovery inputs right as coaches right we're trying to find the the, the sustainable approach mm -hmm. just because this one throws you a curveball and says you need to explore new avenues of balancing intensity and low and you know and recovery and all these things doesn't mean that there isn't a balance there now there may not be a balance there for everybody every mm -hmm. individual but if you race three times a week and had no other significant intense training mm -hmm. on a weekly basis the distribution of intensity might not look that different that's true that's true program. but it, but that's not really my objective to it it's that it's tell me if you agree with this statement as a coach i would say one of my beliefs and i don't know that this is true it's probably and i'll say it's probably not true for everybody but i think it's true for most riders is that what the body fundamentally doesn't like is the same stimulus repeated over and over and over again especially precisely the same stimulus and what happens is you give someone a stimulus, which I'll define as something that's hard enough to make you good, but not hard enough to make you go to the hospital or give you an injury or whatever. It initially gets you better. And then you keep that stimulus the same and you'll plateau as a response. And then if you keep hammering that same stimulus, especially if it's maximal in some form, which I would say a 45 minute bike race is, even after you get better and the race gets easier, if you keep doing the same thing over a long enough time, you're gonna run into some sort of challenge. The question isn't, it's not an if, it's a when, and it's a question for most riders. I'm sure there's David Goggin exceptions out there. Most riders will eventually hit some sort of challenge. They'll get sick or they'll, they'll get injured or they'll get really stale or they'll hate their bike or they'll get burnt out. Or because the humans, because that's, let me try to be, cohesive in my thoughts because all natural creatures are governed by annual cycles. And in the spring flowers come out and bloom in the summer. And then in the fall, they, the petals fall off. There's a natural cycle of spring, summer, fall, winter to every biological creature on, and, on a planet with those cycles which we are on currently, we're not but even on. But it doesn't mean that's not, those are the only cycles we can survive in or thrive in. No, 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 it doesn't. But but do you want to just survive or do you want to thrive? Well, I, that's why I said both. Okay. You could, I mean, you may be able to thrive in an alternate setup. We don't. I think, yeah, I guess I, 
I guess I fundamentally disagree. I think I'm, I'm sure there are examples of riders who are like, yeah, I've raced four seasons in Zwift and I did 11 months a year or 12 months a year and I'm fine and I'm smashing. Okay. Good for you. Like, uh, but I would go back to your point like, though. That's four years. Even if it's four years, Yeah. how many years do you want to live? Are you, are you going to have health after being a bike racer? And I'm not saying you're going to give yourself. But if that's, a but for some people, problem. I think if that's what they want to do, then, sure. then it's good. It has goodness, right? It, if, At, like, what, I guess what, what I'm if saying that is, same person hates structured training? Yeah, right. No, I understand your point. <laughs> I understand your point. What I'm saying is there, okay, I agree with that. There can be goodness in that. If the person has a passion for that and they want to do it, there can be goodness in that. My job as a coach is to educate them. Look, I don't know everything and I don't know how your outcome is going to be. I don't have a crystal ball. But if I'm a betting man, there will be a price for this. So are you willing? We want you to know what that price could be. That's my job is to simply offer that information. I think the price could be this, a loss in bone density, um, potentially mineral imbalances, functional imbalances, a sense of twistedness. It could be... Uh, compensations and muscular movement patterns, postural compensations that are made or, or, or ramifications of posture that are very ongoing, just as examples. So just as so you're aware, these are like, you're, you're doing something that is by, I would argue by definition out of balance. And we all are as elite, you and I wrote, I mean, elite but athletes are all out of balance by definition. more out of balance? Spending 25 to 30 hours on the bike or spending eight for hard which or hard? Uh, it depends on what timeline we're talking about. If we're talking 25 to 30 hours a week for a year versus eight, I would say that 25 to 30 are probably more out of balance. But if we're talking for, but they're, they're both out of balance, but I agree that 25 to 30 is more out of balance. Right. And so, I mean, you're just that same movement pattern is being repeated yes. for longer and longer and longer. Lower, and, lower duration, and, longer. Yeah. Or and, I mean, lower intensity, longer duration. There's some proportion of intent. You could argue that the eight hours of intensity that the indoor racer is doing, so is the other one. They're just doing an additional 22 hours yes. of low intensity. Probably. Right. So that's yeah. more yeah. stress. Like, yeah. you know, that a you lot know. more. So a lot more hormonal I, I, disruption. And, I, you know, yeah. I, I mean, without segueing out of, I mean, and since yeah. we got to wrap up, but, yeah. um, you know, I don't think pros do proportionately more intensity, right? They're, this whole mm. polarized and everything else, that's all percentage-based, which is kind of mm. silly because there's probably a maximal amount of intensity, higher, like higher intensity that you can do no matter yeah. how many hours you're training. So the, as you add, so maybe it is like, yes, those guys are doing 30, 35 hours a week but they're doing the same amount of high intensity as mm. someone who's time challenged. I don't know. No, I wouldn't say that. Cause I mean, you look at, I just had data from one of my athletes who's in Europe racing some um, amateur races, some high level UCI track races and amateur road races in Germany uh, and Switzerland. And he's got, I mean, his time and zone is, you know, it's, it's 25 minutes of, uh, maximal aerobic power, what people would commonly call VO2. It's uh, 20 to 25 minutes of glycolytic power, almost an hour of threshold, an hour plus of tempo. No, in a single race. Oh, in a single well, race. Race, races are, are and he's one racing, thing. And he's but, racing two or three times a week for but, several weeks on end. So if you do 10 and 90, let's say you'd say yeah. 10% is like VO2 and up, right? If you do 30 hours of training a week, that's 180 minutes at zone of five plus. Per week. Very few people are doing are that. doing that, right? Right. So, 
the proportionate by percentages mm. still the same bs ah they're doing a lot mm -hmm. but they're not doing 10 percent. right 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 because if you scale up large enough it can't be it's just too many minutes right yeah it's like how much threshold i mean you know 50% like if you so like if you took the sweet spot or the threshold trading plans and yeah. you were doing like 50% in zone three four or high zone three and zone four you could do 15 hours of threshold a week no <laughs> some people trying <laughs> you can't but it's you can't not possible no right no so even like the people who do the most like like that that Norwegian skater who yeah. published his stuff yeah that was high you have those numbers you looked at and you go like whoa Wow, that's a lot of work, right? And the maximum that he could stand without injury or mm -hmm. issue was eight. Yeah, and early in his program, he just tried to do that initially, and you saw it was like yeah. knee hurts three days right. off, right. knee hurts so, four days off. Yeah, there's a limit to how, took a while how to get much there. time you can go hard. Yes, and the question is, does Zwift racing push you over that? No, I wouldn't say that's it. I w it's not about the volume of intensity. It's about the frequency of intensity. That's what concerns me because if someone's racing, and I don't know that this is the case, but it, but you said there's like hundreds of races on Zwift, especially in the winter. So people could race three, four, five times a week easily. They could race seven days a week, I would guess, multiple times a day. Now, I don't know if anyone does that, but is that good or bad? I you know uh, just like anything, if somebody takes it to the extreme, or is obviously it sustainable, it's bad. or maybe yeah. there's a better question than good or bad. Right? Because is it doable? Yeah. How long is it doable? And what are the consequences yeah. of doing it? Yeah. Right. I, I mean, maybe uh, so I'll say there are two things that probably are biasing my perspective that come to mind right now. Um, and then we'll wrap up. Sorry. No, that's, you good. So one is that I live at altitude and I've always lived at altitude. Granted, I've raced a lot at sea level. Right. So that's that biases my perspective because you know, as well as I do that um, training and super intense zones at altitude. It's just different. It hits your body. It impacts your body differently than it does at sea level. Um, people can go out and do six hour rides at sea level and just tick off a lot more intensity. And there's, it's got a different impact on the body and living it, living in altitude comes at a price, right? It gains you something, gains you this baseline. Even walking up the stairs, we probably use more O2 than somebody certainly does at sea level walking up a staircase. So we get that background benefit. So that, that influences sometimes, I think, negatively my um, conservatism as a coach. I recognize that over the years. There are times where I'm like, ooh, I didn't quite get that right or enough work because I come back to my, protective. like, how much yeah. work? Yeah, like, I don't want to overcook them. And then I forget, oh, he was at sea level for three weeks. Right. So there's that. Um, and then the other thing, oh, shit, I think I lost it now. I had some other bias that I was going to bring up in my own perspective on this. No, anyway. Well, I, I thought it was interesting. Just as a coach, from a coach, it's like I, I, I know the same principles. I'm guided by the same principles that you are in terms of like what we think about in terms of intensity distribution and yeah. seasonality and rest and recovery and all that kind of stuff. But I, I do also know from earlier times when I was racing in my career where, where I almost on a lark was like, well, I'm going to go do this thing. And this thing is nuts. It's, it's outside of the normal, like for an interval, like a hill repeat session or something. Yep. I'm just going to go see if I can do it. Yeah. You know, and, and that was actually kind of interesting moment for me where I was like, and I was able to do it and I was able to do it in a better way. And I wasn't wrecked and all of these things. And it made me think, it was like, well, 
how many of these limits are imposed by yeah. tradition or, or you know, con conventional wisdom? Yep. And what would we be capable if, just, of if we, we tried to go outside of those boxes yeah. a little bit? Yeah. And maybe Zwift, you know, can be one of those boxes or, or it sort of pushes the edge of some of those mm. boxes because it's like never before has this been an option. Right. And, yeah. Unless somebody <laughs> lived in SoCal. Yeah. I see what you're saying. Right. Right. Aside from the warm, the mild climate year round or something. Well, I did. I trained in okay. San Diego and yeah. there were group rides in the winter All and there's triathletes who yeah. have seized, you know, they're going to Cozumel yep. in January. Yeah. So there's people out there that are pushing. Right. Mm -hmm. And you would ride hard and crits started in February. Yeah. You know, and the season ended in October mm -hmm. and we just did it. You know, I mean, that used to be the way stuff started in March here and went till yeah. September at least. Yeah. At and one so, point in time. Yeah. So now we have this Zwift thing, which does one of two things. You could race the whole year in some fashion yeah. or you race in what is typically the off season. Yeah. For us, Northern hemisphere. But I mean, to be fair, I've done that too, where I've raced the season through track through the winter and I've also mixed in cyclocross and then raced all year in the winter. So I know, yeah. or people who it's do possible cross country skiing yeah. or, but are two sport athletes like, yeah. like Bjorn Riley, you yeah. know, growing up, he would do, you know, cross country ski racing yep. all winter, and then he'd switch over to the bike and he'd race all summer. And but the advantage there, from a biomechanical perspective, for me, sure. there's this difference in movement pattern that helps you. So okay, that was my second bias I was going to get at. Is I recognize that in myself, I have this, I have the res, a resistance to doing too much of the same thing, and maybe that's just my own belief system. And I realize, I try to realize that it doesn't apply to every athlete. Some people can do the same thing over and over and over again, ad nauseum. And some people want to, that's their personality. I neither can nor want to, maybe I, maybe I'm more capable of canning than I actually express because my head is like, I'm sick I'm of this. not doing that. I don't want to do that. Yeah. So I have to, I mean, this is coaching, right? We have to like, hopefully recognize our own biases and try to not let them influence our client or limit our client in a way when they're really actually on the verge of, success yeah because they're like what but i just want to ride six hours again I'm like, dude well and and there's got to be coaches or whatever for these swift racers right, right? so think right. about you have to break out of what you think of as the cycling cycle yeah you know yeah and you're like well no, no. this is different actually and yeah. you adapt preparation and rest and recovery and all of those variables to what the mm -hmm. demands are mm -hmm. and if the mm -hmm. end point is with racing yeah and, and honestly, I could say, even though I did it in the real world and, and I am deeply connected to that sport, yeah, I just view Zwift as a different incarnation of the sport and, mm -hmm. and I'm not trying to fit it into the outside racing or the real life racing. I mean, in, in road and mountain and cross, those are, those are all variations too. And they yeah. have their own demands yeah. and, you know, you yeah. can't like, you know, kind of treat them all the same. And I, I could see. I mean, I haven't done it, although I guess if I did like 50 races between September and May, you know, in, in our off season, I engaged in it substantially. Mm -hmm. um, I could see like intellectually, I could see like, hey, this is actually a decent way to get your racing on. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know I mean, given the alternatives. Yeah. What? <laughs> Which is like a whole I mean, nother. It what is. would be it's really other, interesting yeah. is like, <clears throat> is Zwift racing contributing to the demise of outside oh, yeah. racing? That is that a, would be. Yeah. A, I, I actually think the demographics might actually be separate, mm. but um, 
but that would be an interesting one to unpack, which would require yeah. a bunch of research and stuff. Yeah, to yeah, yeah. I wouldn't be terribly surprised if it was at least a contributing factor. There, I think there are lots of factors, but yeah, yeah. I mean, it's an unfortunate truth. Like, but if we take like, obviously, there are people who've come out of the Zwift community. And of course, they weren't exclusively Zwift racers. Yeah. But like Jay Vine, who's now a top yeah. world tour rider, you know, some of the women have come through these academies and stuff and done well. Yeah. So clearly there's overlap between the two that that the skills are skills and strengths and weaknesses sort of apply to both. Yeah. Um, even though there there's parts that don't overlap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Interesting. Cool. Jeff, thank you so much for taking yes. the time to uh, discuss with me yes. and have this debate. It's good stuff. It's really sort of on point. points. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that was good. I mean, I'll say you're, you're right. I think one of the things that's landing with me is your point that really it is a, it's a different iteration of cycling. And I, um, so often we go through our lives and we expect something to be some way other than what it is and what is with fundamentally it's at its nature. It's, it's cycling and yet at the same time it's its own unique expression of cycling. And I don't particularly identify with that or find it to be something that's motivating for me, but I don't, but I don't have a problem with it per se. Again, it's just about, to me, it's a bit like drinking wine. Like, okay, we're gonna be adults. We're gonna drink wine. We're gonna smoke pot or we're gonna do whatever it is you're gonna do. You're gonna drink some tequila, drink some tequila. Okay, cool, be an adult. Like understand the consequences of drinking your tequila. Right? You go drinking hard all the time. Well, then know that certain things are going to happen. Mm-hmm. And I'm using that as a as an intentional analogy because I think there are aspects of Zwift that are bad for you. I'll say that they're 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 not um, optimized for global health. But also, you can make that argument about all of cycling. Sure, cycling is not how the healthiest sport for humans. How yeah. it's done matters. How it's done matters, and how you offset it matters, and how, the relationship you have with sport. Zwift maybe has a few more things that are a little ominous than mountain biking, for example. But then again, it's really hard to break your femur riding Zwift. So <laughs> I have not heard of one. Right. Not yet. <laughs> Keep it up, right, people. So, uh, Jeff, just uh, remind everyone where they can find out more information about you. And if you decide that you want to hire Jeff to be your Zwift coach and not me, then you should reach out to Jeff Winkler. Yeah, I actually don't have, I was gonna coach someone that was probably a strong candidate for like a okay. gift only, but uh, yeah. it didn't, didn't, end up, didn't go down that way. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I'm on online, Jeff Winkler, you know, Winkler coaching, Winkler cycling, so. Um, cool. Yep. Okay. Thanks, Alrighty. man, I appreciate it. Good times. Okay. Epilogue. I want to share a few brief thoughts about the inception of cycling and alignment. The purpose of this podcast is for me to get three and a half decades of hard fought lessons out of my skull. Some of them through my own research and reading. Some of them I've been taught through mentors and colleagues, other riders, other racers. A lot of it, a massive amount of it was simply trial and error through my own stubborn methods and that has amassed a certain amount of experience and knowledge understanding and while i think i'm reasonably smart and i know quite a bit of stuff i want to make it clear that 
the opinions that I share on this podcast are belief systems built on what I've experienced to this point. And that some of those opinions are pretty strong, but they are also loosely held. That is to say that if I learn more about a topic and have a greater level of clarity or understanding, then my old belief systems will be abandoned and I will now operate under that newfound knowledge. So I'm not here to tell people all the things that I know. I'm here to explain what I've learned to this point. And there's a big difference. Also, that is the intent when I discuss things on the pod with guests is to learn from them and have a discourse. Because if we can't have a discourse as adults, then we've lost one of the basic tenets of modern society. Even if we disagree, we ought to be able to, in most cases, shake hands and walk away. Because after all, this is sport we're talking about. And while sport is training for life, It's nothing to get too upset over. The purpose of the podcast is to help me help other people and specifically to help them actualize their highest potential by illuminating a path that enables alignment with their truth, their intent, and their coherence. That's really the end goal. So I'm grateful for your listening. My intent is also not to be clear, to gain an audience or become popular or gain social status in any way. I don't care about that stuff. That said, if you feel an episode that you have heard will help someone you know, please share it with them. That helps us reach the end goal, which is to help more people. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful for your time and attention. Blessings. Blessings.